He is risen. Amen. Some of you may be wondering, you know, Easter was a couple of weeks ago. Why is the preacher still having us do this? Uh, And you're right that Easter was a couple of weeks ago. But as I said last week, it's still Easter. Easter lasts for seven weeks. And so here we are still declaring he is risen. He is risen indeed. This past week, uh, I had the opportunity to go down to Pepperdine University and attend the Harbor lectures there. Uh, Chris was there with me. Uh, is, is there anyone else who's been to that before? I know there's a handful of people who've, who've been down there. I have never been to Pepperdine before. I've never, well, I may have been to Malibu before, but I was a kid. So um, it was beautiful. And, and lovely, and, and it was a great week filled with worship, filled with Bible teaching, filled with all kinds of good stuff. And yesterday, after it was all over, before Caitlin and I flew back up here, we were spending some time out on one of the beaches, walking around, uh, and we were taking pictures of things and looking at the water, and yes, it was filled with surfers, just like you would imagine. And while we were there, I was, was looking at my phone and I saw the news that a really popular Christian author had just passed away. Uh, her name is Rachel Held Evans. Some of you may have read some of her books. She was only 37 years old, um, had kind of come down with sort of a freak sickness, had some reactions to the antibiotics, and didn't come out of it. And... Um, That's shocking enough to read, to hear about as it is, but the news of death kind of hits me differently after having experienced the death of my mother just this past month. And so I just kind of felt myself beginning to well up and and feel that weight, that sadness. And I just started thinking about man, death just keeps on spreading, doesn't it? It can feel that way. I sort of, the the way that I started thinking about it was that, you know, I remember graduating from from high school or or you say graduating from college and and going back, you know, after I had graduated the next year to visit and, and see some of my old friends who are maybe a year or two younger than me, visit some of my old teachers or professors. And and that's all good. But, you know, after a few years, if you go back and visit your high school, you don't know a single person anymore. Because the whole entire school has become a whole new school. Um, And on a little bit of a bigger scale, that's really what Earth is like. That every few years, there's just a whole new slew of people. And after a while, it can feel stranger and stranger, lonelier and lonelier, as more and more people that we know and see experience death. But nonetheless, we declare, he is risen. One of the sessions that I got to go to this past week talked about celebration and joy as an act of defiance against all the powers of evil and death. 
And so as we are in the midst of this season of Easter that's still going, we're in week three of seven, I want to ask you, what are you doing to celebrate Easter? What are you doing as an act of defiance against the powers of death? You know, some years we might think to ask the question, what are you giving up for Lent? But we rarely think to ask the question, what are you doing to celebrate the season of Easter? I was recently listening to a podcast that was kind of discussing this question. Uh, The woman being interviewed said that for years, her and her family have had a weekly dance party in their living room during the season of Easter. Every Sunday, for seven Sundays, her and her family crank up their favorite music and celebrate life together. And apparently some of their neighbors have even started coming over because it's just that much fun, right? Maybe this could be something that you could explore, experiment with. You know, she also said that she tends to keep fresh flowers in her home during the season of Easter because the bright colors and the sweet smells remind her of the reality of new life. And she also talked about simply taking time to play. God has given us breath to breathe and life to live. So may we breathe deeply and live fully. May we celebrate even in the face of death. He is risen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 15. It's still Easter, and so we're still talking about resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a whole chapter about resurrection. While you're turning there, I'll I'll catch you up with where we left off last week. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11, where Paul reminds the Corinthians of the basic story of the gospel that he proclaimed and that they believed. And it is this, Christ died and was buried. He was raised and he was seen by many people. And this story is good and true. And he says in verse 11 that this is the story that we proclaim and that you have come to believe. And all of this is good and encouraging. But then in verse 12, we see a problem arise. And Paul launches into a lengthy argument filled with rhetorical questions, theological proclamations, and some practical examples. And last week, I ended with the question, what are the implications of this good gospel story for us? Well, today, through the lengthy logics of Paul, I think we're going to see some of those implications. So let's read, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? I die every day. This is a certain, brothers and sisters, as my boasting of you, a boast that I make in Christ Jesus our Lord. If with merely human hopes I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what would I have gained by it? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So come to a sober and right mind and sin no more. For there are some people who have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Even whenever it is long, wordy, confusing, thank you for this good news that death does not have the final word. So God, as we reflect on this text today, I ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this passage can be pretty dizzying as Paul layers one argument on top of another. Passages like this one can be really easy to sort of gloss over because of all the rhetoric, but it's 
a really essential passage for understanding the implications of the resurrection. Because beneath all of the syllogisms and rhetorical questions, we can see Paul declaring the reality of the resurrection, the reign of God, and the way that we live in light of it. So I'm going to break this passage into three parts for us to walk through together. And inspired by Paul, I'll summarize each of these parts with an if-then statement. All right, so verses 12 through 23 essentially claim, if Christ is raised, then we will be raised. And then verses 24 through 28 say, if Christ is raised, then God reigns. And verses 29 through 34 show, if Christ is raised, then life is transformed. So that's where we're going. This is the logic of resurrection, if you will. So first, if Christ is raised, then we will be raised. Okay, in verse 12, as I mentioned, we see a problem arise. Some of the Corinthians are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul takes issue with that, right? And he launches into a 22-verse tirade about it. That's everything we just read. And in this first section, his argument is basically, listen, if the dead aren't raised, then Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then we're not only a bunch of fools, we're a bunch of really pitiful fools, right? Of all people most to be pitied. So this is the logical conclusion of what the Corinthians are saying. But I don't think that's actually what Paul is upset about. Because you see, some people might wrestle with the reality of resurrection, trying to weigh the scientific evidence against this wild claim at the root of the Christian faith. And if that's you, that's okay. Thank goodness that John included that story about Thomas, right? Thomas, who said, unless I see the wounds, I won't believe. That story shows us that wrestling with uncertainty is okay. Jesus didn't rebuke Thomas. He invited him even closer to touch the wounds, to feel the scars. And so if that's you, you're invited even closer to examine this faith, to wrestle with it, and to wonder at it. But that's not what Paul is upset about, right? What Paul is upset about is those who believe the story of the gospel, that Christ died and was raised, but then go on to say, oh, that doesn't really affect me. You know, that doesn't really affect us, right? Sure, Jesus was raised from the dead, but, but there's no resurrection of the dead. That's what they're saying. And this stance that some of the Corinthians seem to have had, I think kind of exposes how some of us actually live. 
Because for some of us, we deny the resurrection through a kind of selfish hypocrisy, right? We may come to church and say, he is risen indeed, but then deny that proclamation with our very lives. And Paul says that that kind of faith is futile. And because of it, we still live in our sins. For others, maybe it's not selfish hypocrisy, but rather a kind of self-doubt. Right? We believe that God would raise Jesus, but doubt that he would really raise us. You know, we believe that when God says, let there be light, there was light. But we doubt that when God says, you are my beloved child, your sins are forgiven, that that is actually true. But this good news tells us that the very same spirit that was in Jesus, that raised him from the dead, dwells in us, dwells in you, that you are loved, you are forgiven, and you can be raised. In fact, you will be. And now I think there are others who maybe don't have a selfish hypocrisy or a self-doubt, but instead just have kind of a general cynicism, right? It's not that I'm actively sinning against God. Neither is it that I don't, you know, that I really doubt myself or or God's love for me. Rather, I, I just kind of doubt everyone, everything, right? No one will ever really change. There's really no point in reaching out or engaging or hoping at all. Sure, maybe Christ is raised, but everyone else is just dead. That's all that they ever will be, right? And so this is another way of denying the resurrection of the dead with cynicism, And so what Paul is frustrated about is those who say Christ is risen, but then live with selfishness, self-doubt, and cynicism instead of celebration. But look at verse 20. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have died For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. You see, his first argument was, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no resurrection of Christ. But here, and look closely, he turns that argument around. And he says positively, if Christ is raised, then there is resurrection of the dead. If Christ is raised, then we will be raised also. Now this may be a silly analogy, but it's kind of the picture that I got in my head as I was thinking about it. 
Do any of you ever come across railroad crossings on your daily commute? Okay, we got a few people. Um, have any of you ever been stopped by a train? Oh, right, right. I used to experience this quite a bit during the years that I worked in the uh, downtown Seattle waterfront. Um, there's a few blocks that just get blocked off by that railroad track. Um, and then Sugarland, Texas, where I grew up, has a railroad going straight through the middle of it. Um, and so anytime you're going from one place to another, it's very likely uh, you'll have to cross it and maybe get caught at it, right? Now, if you've ever encountered this, then, you know, you see the big engine go by, huffing and puffing, doing its thing. And once it passes, you get to go, right? No. No, once it passes, there's another train car, and another train car, and another train car, and they keep on coming. And you have to wait for the whole train to pass. Well, with the resurrection, Christ is that engine. And we are all of the train cars that follow. I think that's what Paul means in verse 20 and 23 by first fruits. Christ goes first. Christ has gone first. And we will all follow him. The first fruits are not the entirety of the harvest, right? There is more harvest to come. The resurrection of Christ is only the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. As all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Christ is the first fruits, and then it is coming, all of those who belong to Christ. So if Christ is raised, then we will be raised. This is the logic of the resurrection. There was a time when death was inevitable. There's a time when we all knew that death was coming. But now, even in the face of death, life is inevitable. Terry once shared a powerful quote with me from Richard Rohr. Right? She may have shared some Richard Rohr quotes with some of you as well. Um, she, she told me, life has no opposite because death just leads to resurrection. Life is inevitable. If Christ is raised, then we will be raised. This is the logic of the resurrection. And this leads us to the next section where Paul moves from talking about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead to talking about the kingdom of God and the consummation of all things. And so if Christ is raised, well, that means that God reigns. Okay, look at verse 24. Paul writes, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, on the surface, this part of the passage can, 
kind of look like the end of really any big Hollywood action film. You know, like after all the drama, after all of the plot twists, after all of the characters and storytelling, it ultimately just comes down to some big showdown, big final battle, where the good guy flexes their muscles and kills the bad guy, right? Like it ultimately comes down to who is the most powerful. And we can imagine this scene just like that. You know, Christ is raised and God reigns. But I want to show you how subversive the resurrection really is. I want to show you what kind of reign it is that God has. Right? You see, most kingdoms are ruled with brute force. All you have to do is really take any page from a history book and you'll see wars, battles, murder, and bloodshed, right? This is how kingdoms are established and how kingdoms spread. They bring death upon their enemies. But this is not how the kingdom of God is established. Jesus does not defeat his enemies by bringing death upon them. Rather, he defeats the enemy that is death by transforming it into resurrection. Jesus is ultimately about transformation, right? He transforms water into wine. He transforms sinners into disciples. And he transforms death into resurrection. And how does he do this? Right? By, by asserting his power and authority over everything and everyone? No. Rather, the Father and the Son accomplish this together by being humble and serving one another. Look at verse 24 again. It says, Then comes the end when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God. And then down at verse 27, it says, God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. So God the Father loves and serves the Son by raising him from the dead and seating him above all rulers and authorities. But then Jesus turns around and loves and serves the Father by humbly handing over the kingdom to him. You know, there's so many ancient legends that talk about gods warring and fighting with one another. But that is not our God. Here you see the Father and the Son working together in perfect unity and peace to bring about a peaceable kingdom where death will be no more. This past week, while I was at Pepperdine, one of the uh, sessions that I went to was with Randy Harris, and he talked about resurrection. And he asked this question. He said, all right, so after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, what do you think is the first thing that they said to each other? And, you know, he said, that's a good meditation to wonder about for a while, right? Spend some time meditating on that. 
But the answer that he suggested was this. That after Jesus raises and goes to be with the Father, they just look at one another and they say, we did it. It was hard. It was painful. But we did it. Death, disease, sickness, sin, they're gone. And that's the picture that Paul seems to suggest here. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working together such that they can look to one another and say, we did it. We did it. This is a picture of the reign of God. Not power struggles. Not destroying and killing all of the enemies, but rather transforming death into resurrection and doing so by loving and serving one another. So if Christ is raised, then we will be raised. If Christ is raised, then God reigns. And so finally, we make it to the last part of our passage. If Christ is raised, then life is transformed. Here in this last section, Paul gives some real-life practical examples, although we have to admit they're still a little strange, right? If you're listening, he talks about baptism for the dead. He talks about fighting wild animals. He talks about having a sober mind, which strangely makes the most sense out of all of these, right? Now, we can discuss what in the world is meant by baptism of the dead. Uh, We can talk about whether the fighting animals was a literal thing or a figurative thing. But even though these things are confusing and elusive, the point that Paul makes is pretty clear. The resurrection of Christ gives significance to our worship, it gives confidence to our fears, and it brings righteousness to our lives. Right? Because of the resurrection, baptism, Bible reading, song singing, others serving, communion taking, and communal living are all significant. All of these things that we do, that we call worship, actually matter, right? They're not just empty tokens. They're actually full of the Spirit who brings life, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. These practices are marks of a real and deep spiritual life. The resurrection shows us this, right? Because of the resurrection, we can be confident in the face of fear, right? Paul talks about fighting off wild animals. Maybe he's referring to some actual crazy encounter in the wilderness. Uh, A lot of people suggest that he's talking about enemies that he has in Ephesus who are opposing him, and he's calling them wild animals, Um, But nonetheless, the resurrection gives us confidence in the face of opposition. We can face grief and doubt 
and conflict with confidence because we know that the love of Christ is strong enough. And we know that the life of Christ is real enough to get us through. And because of the resurrection, we are empowered to live in righteousness. Right? If the dead are not raised, then we should just become gluttons and drunkards because we're going to die tomorrow. But if the dead are raised, then we don't die tomorrow. And what we do today actually means something. So as we consider all of this, what is God calling you to? Maybe it's simply acknowledging the truth that if Christ is raised, then you will be raised. And responding in celebration. Go home and throw a dance party. Right? Defy death with life. Maybe it's knowing that if Christ is raised, then God reigns. And that leads us to commit our lives to humble service, just like the Father and the Son loved and served one another and brought life where there was once death. Or maybe it's knowing that if Christ is raised, then life is transformed. And letting that reality wash away all of our sins, all of our fears, and give true meaning to every act. Whatever it may be, I hope that we can be a people who live in the logic of the resurrection. And whatever we may do, may we declare, He is risen. Amen.